This is Prophecy Update, July 2022, Biden and the Supreme Court, with Matthew Shanshay. October 2021, Catholic U.S. President Joe Biden went to visit Pope Francis at the Vatican. It was a special visit for Biden, who expressed exactly how close he holds Francis and his views. Biden, the second Catholic president in U.S. history, choked up as he spoke about his feelings about the Pope and Catholicism. I'm not sure this is appropriate, but there's a tradition in America that the president has what is called a command coin that he gives to warriors and leaders. And uh, you are the most significant warrior for peace I've ever met. Pope Francis has become a, uh, I don't want to exaggerate, has become someone who's provided great solace for my family when my son died. This is a man who is of great empathy. He's a man who understands that part of his uh, Christianity is to reach out and to forgive. Um, and uh, so I just find my relationship with him one that I personally take great solace in. He is a really, truly, genuine, decent man. And I meant what I said. I, this is uh, someone who... Uh, is looking to establish uh, peace and decency and honor, not just in the Catholic Church, but just generically. There certainly would be Protestants who were part of the early founding of the United States that would see these types of statements as evidence that the Roman monarchy has successfully invaded the U.S. government. In fact, these statements act as evidence for how far removed America is from its Protestant founding showing a rapidly growing sympathy towards Rome and marking a stark contrast from the previous and only other Roman Catholic president in U.S. history in John F. Kennedy, who during his presidency had to diligently claim his stance as an American first and a Catholic second, stating in his own words that the Vatican would not influence his presidency, an issue that many mainline Protestants who knew their history were legitimately concerned with. It was the candidacy that challenged America's religious conscience. The election year was 1960. In 1960, one of the big questions is, would America elect a Catholic president? Many people were doubtful whether Kennedy, regardless of how charismatic he was or how good he was in terms of his policies, could win. Anti-Catholicism was extremely strong in this period in American history. And there was a sense that Catholics are different. Uh, that they couldn't be trusted in positions of power. And there was all kinds of rumors, always, that Kennedy would really rule through the Vatican. That was the argument a lot of anti-Catholics would make. The uh, question is whether I think that uh, if I were elected president, I would be divided between two loyalties, my church and my state. He says that uh, he will not accept the dictates of the Pope uh, as president, that he will be his own president, that his religion will not dictate uh, his public policy. He just says, uh, I am a Catholic, but I will not govern as a Catholic. I believe in an America where no religious body seeks to impose its will, directly or indirectly, upon the general populace. 
But why is a president's religion of any concern? Consider this passage on JFK from History.com. In the late 1950s, Catholic politicians were viewed with an open suspicion by many mainline Protestants and evangelicals. Sean Casey, director of the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University, and author of The Making of a Catholic President, says that Catholic candidates were accused of having, quote, dual loyalties to both the Vatican and the United States. The argument was when push came to shove, a president who is Roman Catholic would ultimately be more loyal to the Vatican because the fate of his eternal soul was at stake, says Casey. Although this quote was given by a director at one of the most prestigious Jesuit universities in the United States, the point he shares is valid to this very day. When dealing with practicing Catholic politicians and leaders, there is always one key question. Where do their first loyalties lie? To their country or to their pope? As the Bible says, one cannot serve two masters. You see, most Protestants at the time of JFK still understood, to some degree, the true character of the papacy and its long persecuting history. But there's another major challenge in having Catholics hold high positions of power and authority in foreign governments. Unlike other religions, the head of the Catholic Church is also the king of a civil monarchy. And not just a king, but a king that claims complete and total temporal authority over all governments on earth. And a king that claims to be God's one true representative here on earth, holding the keys to death and hell and heaven and eternal life. In his address, the Pope explained the Roman doctrine that none could enter the fold of Christ except under pontifical guidance. Even claiming to forgive sins, a power that only Jesus Christ alone has. It's these types of claims that helps qualify the seat of the Pope and the one who holds it at the time as the man of sin, the son of perdition, or 666 the number of a man. This is an important point that most who claim that it's the Jewish Kabbalists who are secretly running the hierarchy of the world. Ask them, who then is the man of sin? You see, they have it backwards. The secret societies, Kabbalists, Gnostics, and other man-is-God sun-worshipping cults have been infiltrated by papal ideologies through Jesuitism and other papal orders, not the other way around. Nor do these groups of individuals that operate in the background, unseen to the common eye, fit any of the classifications or definitions of the final end-time power as described by the Bible, where it states in Revelation 13 that two visible civil and religious powers will cause the whole world to worship the dragon, which the Bible defines as Satan himself. So when the second Catholic president in U.S. history talks about the Pope in such a way as Biden does, it should raise prophetic alarm bells for anyone who understands Bible prophecy and are actively watching America and the Vatican develop the closest relationship they've had in history. For just the second time in U.S. history, a Roman Catholic president arrived at the Vatican for a meeting with his church's leader. But Friday's meeting is unlike any before between a Pope and a president. More of a reunion between two men who over the past decade have developed a close personal and even political bond. Where JFK was careful to establish independence from Rome, Biden has not shielded from highlighting how his faith has shaped his career. 
nor from the relationship he's developed with Francis, grounded in shared faith and philosophy and deepened through multiple face-to-face meetings. Now, they meet for the first time as peers and fellow heads of state with an agenda that is expected to include climate, poverty, and the global response to COVID-19. So here we are, just over one year into this Biden presidency, it's time to take a look at how things are aligning prophetically. Welcome to the Amazing Discoveries Prophecy Report, where we review current news and events and their connection to Bible prophecy. I think all of us who have interest in Bible prophecy want to know exactly where we are in the stream of time. So many headlines and crises that claim links to Bible prophecy, the Ukrainian-Russian war, fear of communist China's future as a predominant global power, or some other foreign threat. But let's be clear, there are only two powers the Bible instructs us to focus on for this day and age. And these two powers are playing out the exact roles the Bible predicted. Let's do a quick prophecy review. The Bible points to two powers in Revelation 13 as the prevailing real-world forces that compel the world towards an almost universally accepted false worship system. These two powers have been divinely revealed in Scripture and proven throughout history to be the papacy, the first beast of Revelation 13, and the United States, the second beast of Revelation 13. These two powers will come together at the end of Earth's history to compel the world to accept the worship principles of the papacy. But what does that mean, accept the worship principles of the papacy? Is the Bible saying the Pope and his various orders, such as the Jesuits, Knights of Columbus, Knights of Malta, or any other religious order, are going to take over the world by military force? Not as one might expect. But it's through the teachings and global acceptance of the two great and final errors, Sunday sacredness and the immortality of the soul. Consider this passage from the book, The Great Controversy. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. The Protestants of the United States will be the foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hands of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp the hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of the conscience. The 13th chapter of Revelation is incredibly important for understanding who's really behind these two powers. It is the dragon, or as Revelation 12 and 20 identifies, Satan, that old serpent, the devil, who is behind these beasts, also defined as kingdoms. It is describing the setting up of the dragon's final false worship system which involves both civil and religious components. But ultimately, the whole purpose is to implant false worship into the hearts and minds of each individual by free will or by force. If all this is true, 
we should see the evidence of a major papal influence within the American political system, helping the papacy shape the policies and mindsets of the American government, leading America to create what the Bible calls an image of the beast. And when this image is fully formed, it will be just a reflection of the old papal social and religious system of the Dark Ages and will lead to national ruin. But what is this image exactly? When the state shall use its power to enforce the decrees and sustain the institutions of the church, then will Protestant America have formed an image to the papacy and there will be a national apostasy which will end only in national ruin. But that's impossible, right? That couldn't happen again. As the Bible says, there is no new thing under the sun. If Roman Catholic principles are really going to come under care and protection of the state, how could this be accomplished? A good place to start might be to stack the U.S. legislative and judicial systems with those who believe in and practice Catholic social teachings, which today are showing up in the forms of social justice, climate change, and worker rights movements. But make no mistake, these are all based on a papal agenda to bring the world together, unified under one system, in preparation for something much, much bigger. But to illustrate this point, let's look at just one part of the judicial system but maybe the most important part when it comes to interpreting and shaping the law of the land, the Supreme Court. When you look at the makeup of this group, what does the real world data show? First, it shows that the individuals that make up this high court are all very religious. There are no atheists on the Supreme Court, although separation of church and state is a critical principle in American law the nation's most powerful justices all identify as religious. And what is the religious makeup of the court? In terms of religious demographics, 27% of the country has 100% representation on the Supreme Court, with seven of nine judges identifying as Roman Catholic. The 50% of the country who identify as Protestant have up until a couple of weeks ago, precisely zero representation. Roman Catholics make up roughly 23% of the U.S. population, yet make up 78% of the Supreme Court seats. And up until the most recent appointment of Jackson, who claims to be a Protestant but has no record to show of any protest of Rome, zero Protestants have sat on the Supreme Court despite making up almost 50% of the U.S. population. Does that math make sense to anyone? Since the confirmation of David Sutter, an Episcopalian, which as a faith self-identifies as, quote, Protestant yet Catholic, in 1990, no new justice raised as a Protestant has been chosen for one of the most exclusive professional clubs in the nation. To review the original question, of what the real-world data shows in regards to the nation's highest court. It shows that the makeup of this supposedly fair and balanced group of nine judges is disproportionately overflowing with devout, practicing Roman Catholics, all of whom have, by their own words, shown to align with and uphold Catholic social teachings as the proper worldview. While all have stated during their nomination hearings that their personal 
religious viewpoints would not influence their rulings. The truth is, it's impossible for an individual to completely separate themselves from their own personal beliefs, which is why worldview diversity would be essential in creating a truly fair and balanced Supreme Court. Yet, when we learn of the backgrounds of each of the current judges and just how devoutly Catholic they really are, a clear trajectory and outcome for America's future is revealed. There may be some that cite at this stage that the Constitution says there shall be no religious test for any position in government, and that what we're pointing to here would be a violation of that concept. An article from the Huffington Post adequately relates handling this within the context of the current makeup of the Supreme Court. Even bringing such questions up about the lack of religious diversity on the Supreme Court is a delicate matter. The United States Constitution states quite plainly that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Even if Article 6, Paragraph 3 didn't exist, it brings into question the concept of affirmative action and the concept of quotas, all of which have their own long history, pro and con, in America. So allow me to state from the beginning that I'm not advocating religious quotas for the Supreme Court in any way. I don't think we should revert to the days where people only spoke of there being a, quote, Jewish seat or a, quote, Catholic seat on the Supreme Court. But I still have to wonder, with all the top-notch lawyers in the country, why the current court has such a stunning lack of diversity in the religious realm. I propose no concrete solutions, though I merely raise the question. We are always able, as free-thinking individuals, allowed to consider if the representatives of the people constitute a fair and balanced perspective that considers each individual equally. The basis of the no religious test concept is a good one, but has been manipulated to show a heavy bias towards one worldview. And it's a worldview that just happens to have a history of being the biggest enemy of individual liberties and rights, especially those rights of religious liberty and liberty of conscience or the freedom to think and choose what you believe. There's a distinct difference between that principle of no religious test cited in the Constitution and the core issue of having Roman Catholics in high positions of power within governments outside of Vatican City. All of it stems from the Roman Catholic Church's own claims, which when fully understood makes it unlike any other church on the planet, and thus makes it subject to a different consideration when the no religious test article is considered in the Constitution. As with all laws, context must be considered. And what is the context for the true nature of the Roman Catholic Church? As we'll see, it extends far beyond that of just a church. The Roman Catholic Church claims to be not only endowed with spiritual power, but with temporal power, with the right to rule over all the nations of the earth, a super government. And let me say right here that I do not intend to discuss the dogmas or tenets of the Roman Catholic Church. That church has a perfect right to teach and preach all the dogmas they choose, and its adherents have the right to believe and practice such beliefs, however foolish and absurd they may seem to us. They are entitled to their beliefs and in the exercise of them to the protection of the Constitution and laws of this free commonwealth. But when the Church goes a great step further and claims that it is a nation with all the sovereign attributes of a nation and can interfere with and annul our constitutions and laws, 
and can destroy our free institutions, then, as an American citizen, I have a right to protest against such usurpation of power by an alien sovereignty. This is the issue. The Vatican is not just a church. It is a country with a pope as a king of that country and supreme pontiff or king of his church. This quote was taken directly from the book Romanism as a World Power, written in 1921, and is something everyone should read if they want to understand the true nature of the Roman Catholic Church and how it's impacting America right now. It is that institution that is the key to leading this country, as the Bible says, to eventually create an image of the beast. The early and mid-America eras fully understood the issues with having papal loyalists in high positions of power, a perspective that has been almost entirely lost in the modern world of today. But what was the basis for their concerns? Let's consider this statement made in Bronson's Review in 1858. The church is a kingdom and a power, and as such must have a supreme chief, the pope. And this authority is to be exercised over states as well as individuals. If the Pope directed the Roman Catholics of this country to overthrow the Constitution and put down the American flag, sell the nationality of the country, and annex it as a dependent province, they would be bound to obey. It is the intention of the Pope to possess this country. And what does the Roman Catholic Church have to say? Let's hear from the Archbishop of Wisconsin, where he wrote on April 8, 1921, that American Catholics should understand clearly the teachings of their faith, namely that the church is not a republic or democracy, but a monarchy, that all her, the church's authority, is from above and rests in her hierarchy. Such is the essential constitution of the church given her by Jesus Christ, who placed all the powers and rights of government in his visible kingdom on earth, both in things temporal and things spiritual, exclusively into her visual rulers, the bishops. Protestant judge Honorable Gilbert O. Nations, in his book Papal Sovereignty on page 181, writes on this issue. So long as the sovereign pontiff claims and exercises temporal jurisdiction and participates in the diplomacy and politics of the world, his subjects are bound by the same condition that binds the subjects of other monarchs. No Roman Catholic, while retaining membership in the Papal Empire, which is identical with the Roman Catholic Church, is entitled to citizenship under any civil government. While we are not advocating for the extreme nature of this viewpoint, it does represent how Protestants have historically understood the dangers of Papal loyalists in high government positions. In Eliot's Delineation of Romanism, page 596, it further states the Roman Catholic position in regards to the powers of the Pope. Thomas Aquinas from 1595. The Pope, by divine right, hath spiritual and temporal power as supreme king of the world. He can impose taxes on all Christians and destroy towns and cities for the preservations of Christianity. The Pope is a king of a foreign civil monarchy. And like any king, he expects first loyalty from his subjects. But it goes well beyond that. This particular king claims authority over all governments on earth. 
claiming to be able to forgive sins on the religious side, and then claiming to be able to annul constitutions and laws on the civil side, all based on his self-appointed divine right by God. And no, this right was not given to him by Jesus or his apostle Peter. It is fair to think how the citizens of the United States would react if, say, Russia, China, or North Korea had individuals who, through a profession of faith, claimed first allegiance to one of these foreign powers, but in turn stated to be a neutral and impartial judge on the Supreme Court, or sat in the seat of the presidency itself, and it's not just America. Take a look at Canada, Mexico, Italy, the United Kingdom, and France, and many others, all led by baptized Catholics. If a person truly looked at the extent of Rome's hand in history, it seems almost anyone reviewing the information objectively would call what is happening here a covert usurpation of sovereignty by a foreign power. But today, it's apparently called democracy. In light of the warnings we looked at earlier, that Roman Catholic principles will come under care and protection of the state, let's think about this for a minute. At the highest judicial level right now in 2022, the influence of those who agree with and seek to uphold Roman Catholic social and religious views are seven out of nine Supreme Court justice seats. Although some will say six, it is seven with Neil Gorsuch, whose affiliation is listed as Anglican Catholic. The current makeup of the Supreme Court, in addition to the presidency, marks one of the most dramatic and remarkable shifts in American culture when considering the Protestant foundings of the United States. An article from Quartz offers a review of this shift. U.S. Supreme Court justices are secular clerics of the highest order, the Constitution their guiding document, a set of basic commandments, and textual analysis is their practice used to dissect thorny moral issues. All share reverence for the law. It would be impossible to get the gig without a religious devotion to its rule. There is no religious test for Supreme Court justices, nor any requirement that the bench represent the makeup of the nation. Yet it is notable that the court has gone from all Protestant origins to now mostly Catholic. It may also be indicative of a takeover of the nation's most powerful institutions. Since the court's inception of 1789, there have been 91 Protestant judges named out of 113 total justices. When the High Court was established, justices were chosen from the ranks of the Founding Fathers, who were overwhelmingly Protestant. Of these, 33 have been Episcopalian. The Episcopalian Church calls itself, quote, Protestant yet Catholic. In other words, it's a kind of new Catholicism informed by Martin Luther's Reformation. For the first 180 years of the Supreme Court, Protestant justices were overwhelmingly dominant. Catholics were few. The first appointment was in 1836, and there were no Jews until 1916. It's notable that the only Chief Justice with a Catholic background is Roberts, showing how recent this shift has been. It may be argued that this is a natural progression of selection that accounts for the lack of Catholics in prior eras. But the reality is, the evidence is heavily in support of this being an intentional effort, handled mainly by Jesuit influence, to instill the right people in the right positions, to bring about the needed changes, leading America to fulfill its prophetic role to make an image of the beast, 
And while that hasn't happened yet, through the shaping of the Supreme Court, the presidency, and in the highest levels of American industry, we see the evidence that the forming of this image is in process. And according to Bible prophecy, is an inevitability. But this is just scratching the surface. The more we look, the stranger things get. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss the next episode, where we take a deep dive into the backgrounds of each Supreme Court justice, and you're gonna wanna hear what we found.